0: Uh, It's been very exciting for me as my son has begun to read and appreciate uh, all of these Calvin and Hobbes comics that I've been reading since I was his age. And there was one of them that uh, to me was particularly heartwarming. I always liked it when this jaded, cynical little kid would have a moment with his parents and there would be uh, some tenderness and some forgiveness. And one of those situations was when Calvin and Hobbes decided they needed the garage for a clubhouse. And they were going to set up a card table in there. They were going to draw out secret maps and all these things. But the problem was there was a car in the garage. And they figured we could bother mom, but maybe she'd tell us no and she wouldn't move it. So why don't we move it? Can't be that hard. So they went ahead and put the car into neutral. And they thought they'd just move it a little ways out into the driveway. And they started pushing, or really Calvin started pushing. Uh, and it began going down, down, down. And then it picked up speed and... They were horrified as they watched the car go across the road and disappear down into a ditch. Of course, they did the only sensible thing, which was to gather together some necessities and head out into the wilderness, never to return. And the final uh, comic in that series uh, has Calvin's mother finding him up in a tree with Hobbes, and she says, there you are, come down so I can talk to you. And he says, no, no. You'll kill us. We're running away. She responds, I'm not going to kill you. I just want to find out what happened. Are you okay? Was anyone hurt? Calvin says, no one was hurt. We were pushing the car into the drive, and it kept rolling. The car didn't hit anything. It just went across the road and into the ditch. That's when we took off. She says, well, the tow truck pulled it out, and there's no damage, so you can come home now. To which Calvin looks with a bit of hope in his eyes, around the tree trunk, and says, first, let's hear you say you love me. Sometimes we are worried about what has happened, and we know that we've done wrong, and we need to hear it reaffirmed that whoever we've wronged loves us, and we need to hear it reaffirmed that God still loves us. And the scriptures make that clear. And when we when we come into a, a conflict, especially with another believer, we need to be quick to tell that person, yeah, I'm angry, but I do forgive you, and I do love you. And God forgives you, and God loves you. And that is exactly what we see going on here in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. It begins with, now if anyone has caused pain, and that's a reference back to the verse before, by the way, when Paul said, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you, Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. And so there's this reference to someone who had done something that hurt the church, that hurt Paul, that that had been going on in the past, but now seems to have stopped. Now, the general consensus is he's referring back to what we call 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in which uh, there was a notorious sinner in the midst of the church. If you'll flip back with me, you'll find First Corinthians 5 begins like this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are a- arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And so there is not only a sin going on, but there is this tacit approval by the church through their silence that this is okay and to be tolerated. And with very harsh language, he tells them what to do. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And wow, is that harsh, intense language. And yet, Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians of another letter between the two, kind of one and a half Corinthians, in which he was even harsher. He calls it the severe letter, or we've called it the sorrowful or tearful letter, in which he addressed the issue even more emphatically and told them you absolutely have to put this person out And to us, we say, what is going on that sounds so unloving? Isn't the church supposed to be all about grace and all about forgiveness and all about, well, yeah, grace and forgiveness presuppose repentance. And this was someone who was doing something unrepentant. To to be with his father's wife wasn't even permitted by Roman law. And Roman law not only tolerated, but celebrated all sorts of orgies and wickedness. And so it was a horrible, horrible witness for the church. And the world stood at a distance and said, you claim that you've been washed in the blood of Jesus and now he's making you a new creation, but look what you tolerate and look what you do. And to our ears, this is very odd. Put the person out, hand him over to Satan, to to the realm of Satan, which is the world, rather than the realm of Christ, which is the church, so that he can eventually, in his spirit, be saved. The reason I think it seems so odd is because today, church discipline is a lot like, like Bigfoot, You know, you only see like grainy footage of it every once in a while. It doesn't really happen. Churches are worried and with good reason. When occasionally a church will execute church discipline of some kind, there's a lawsuit and it makes the front page and everyone says, wow, look at these backwards Christians saying to each other, oh, you can't live like that and be part of our group. Can they even do that, is the question. Well, Paul doesn't have that question. In 1 Corinthians 5, he he begins in verse 9 to, to lay this out. I have written in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Therefore, expel the wicked man from among you. And again, this seems to our modern ears to be rather a harsh sentence. But it was carried out. And it seemed to have done the trick and brought not only this one individual, but the whole church into repentance. And now in 2 Corinthians, he begins the healing. And we see in verse 6 what the purpose was of all of this to begin with. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. The goal of this punishment was that his spirit might be saved. You know, punishment often has a number of different reasons and philosophies behind it. Uh, If you study uh, law at all, you see that there are different theories on what the best reason for punishment and the best way to carry it out There's the idea of incapacitation. If we put someone in jail for robbing stores, while they're in jail, they can't rob stores. So we're, in a way, helping the community. There's deterrence. Others who might be tempted to rob stores will go, oh, that makes you go to jail. And they'll be less likely to do it. There's restitution. Perhaps they'll say, you robbed these stores, you owe them whatever you took, and you have to give that back. And that's part of the punishment. There's retribution. Retribution. Where, where there's just, hey, you did something wrong, and in our society of some kind of equity, in order to, to salvage that, we gotta make you suffer like you made them suffer. And of course, there is rehabilitation. The idea that we can help you go from being a criminal to someone who is a productive member of society. Now, church discipline has only one purpose. Not all of those. Now when you're in the book of Revelation and he says that woman Jezebel is teaching falsehood among you. Don't listen to her. Put her out of the church. That is kind of incapacitation, I guess. Don't let her be in there where she can do the damage. But this is not someone who is a believer. When church discipline is properly executed in the scriptures, it is done with one goal in mind. Not retribution, not restitution, not even rehabilitation, but restoration. Put out... In order to bring back in with a plan. You say, listen, we want to restore you. But for the moment, Scripture tells us that we are unequally yoked here. Scripture tells us that what you're doing in an unrepentant way has no place in the church. Just like when you're disciplining a child, you should never do it out of anger. It should never be done with a retribution in mind oh, you just made me mad, so I'm going to make you suffer. I remember my dad used to send me up to my room, and there I would sit for half an hour before he came up to tell me what my punishment was. And I thought that was psychological warfare. He was just getting in my kitchen and messing with me. But no, he was making sure he wasn't angry when he carried out discipline. In the same way... The church has to be very careful when we speak against evils or when we when we point out things in the church at large or in a local congregation that are not right, that it is always done in love, speaking the truth in love, for the purpose of restoring, not for the purpose of dragging down others because we feel they are dragging us down by dragging down our reputation. There is, though, a time to confront, and that time had come and gone now, and then there's a time to comfort and that is, a, that is what Paul is bringing them into now, the last stage. Listen, it's time to stop. It's time to comfort and reaffirm this offender. There are two mistakes that are made in church discipline. There are two extremes. The most common is the, the kind of laissez-faire, anything goes. Church discipline is this unheard of, locked monster thing. And, and, of course, because we believe in grace, that means that we will look aside and wink at sin. That cheapens grace and turns it into nothing. Grace says Christ took on his shoulders the punishment for sin, and so we take sin seriously in the church. This first approach, this first extreme, it says, am I my brother's keeper? Much like Cain said. And Jesus says, yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. You are to help build your brother up, and sometimes that means a rebuke or an admonishment. The other extreme is a harsh and unforgiving approach. I would say an Amish approach, but even the Amish, if you're shunned, eventually you can come back and repent and be accepted back into the community. There is a tendency in some, especially fundamentalist circles, to say once somebody does something wrong, once they breach our code of conduct, they are persona non grata, they are out, never to return. And that is a horrible misrepresentation of what Christ is all about. Now, in the broader picture, I think these two extremes mark the church as well. Not just in areas of church discipline, but but all around. Either nothing is wrong, and everyone's lives and choices and even sin is to be affirmed and even celebrated, or we decide that the church is here as the ultimate judge and jury with the power and duty even to condemn people, even those outside of the church. Well, in 1 Corinthians 5... Paul puts both of those extremes to rest. He says, listen, you can't tolerate wickedness in your midst because that brings slander on the name of Christ. But you also aren't to be judging outsiders and standing in judgment as if you had no sin. All of this is about helping those who have fallen to stand back up. And again, notice they were not going around condemning those outside the church for living lives of sin and debauchery, I mean, who do you think you are living like pagans? Pagans? Well, yeah, that's what they were. Goal here must be restoration. And, and we, we tend to separate God's perfections and play them against each other, as if inside God there were some contradictions innate to his nature, and there are not. But when we take perhaps God's uh, love and mercy, God's grace and acceptance and Tear it against his holiness so that any, any attempt to, to be holy or to promote holiness in the church is met with, well, that's not very loving. That's not very caring. We take God and we, we try and tear him apart. In the same way, when we have fidelity and this very self-righteous thought of, well, we have got it together, but without mercy and compassion, we do the same thing. Paul here is encouraging an embrace of the tension. Holiness and grace together. That is what we see in the church. That is what we see in Christ as he hangs on the cross suffering for us while we were yet sinners. So you rather should turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. See, he's, he's telling this church to do this. The whole church had, had put him out. Not, not just one priest or bishop, but all of them had done it, and so all of them must be involved in this next step of restoration. And when he tells them, I, I beg you to forgive, that word is, is not the usual word for forgive. It only comes up sometimes in Scripture, and it comes from the root charis, which means grace. It's almost like he's, I'm, I'm urging you, I'm, I'm imploring you to grace him. I I am I'm I'm begging you to show him grace. It means to give freely or graciously as a favor. And he he's just he's asking them to do this. He's not commanding them. This is there's no eye for an eye here. And, and he, he sees that there is a need for compassion because those who, who had been caused grief are now causing grief. And there is a human tendency to like that. Ah, he made us look bad. Ah, he brought the apostle down on our heads. Now we'll make, we'll show him. We'll make him suffer. He says, stop it. You you need to have compassion. Yes, he caused grief, but I do not want him to be consumed by grief. Why? Because he's a precious child of God. He's that one, he's that one little lamb that Terry read about that wandered away and God left the 99 and went out and found him and brought him back rejoicing. That is how God views Sin and sinners and restoration and discipline. The rejoicing of bringing back together the one who had strayed. And so he implores them or even begs them to forgive. Remember in in chapter one, he said he would not lord it over their faith. He wants them to decide freely to do this themselves, to show grace. Because indeed, grace is not grace unless it is given freely. Instead of demanding they follow his word, he says, I'll follow your lead. Whoever you forgive, I'll forgive. And I'll do it in the name or the person of Christ. So he's putting the ball in their court and trusting them to follow Christ and do the Christ-like thing. And when they have, what are they to do but reaffirm their love for him? I don't know about that translation. It is technically accurate, but it almost makes it sound like they had removed their love from him. And now that he's done what they want, they say, okay, you can have our love back. That's not the situation at all. It was all done out of love. Perhaps it should say confirm or ratify your love. He needs to hear it. Not only that you still love him, that I still love him, that Christ still loves him. And that he is welcomed back into the body. That the whole point of this church is not that it's a club where perfect people gather together, but it's a hospital where sinners come to be made new. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. That's why he wrote that severe letter. He wanted them to be obedient in everything, not just in the convenient things, not just in the easy things, but in everything. It's easy to follow Jesus just in the areas that appeal to us. Perhaps you're someone who's very regimented and you want a code of conduct. And so you say, all right, I'm going to follow Jesus' moral teachings But perhaps I'm not going to emphasize taking up my cross and following him, laying down my life, being last and a servant of all. Or maybe I like the idea of my sins being washed away, but I sure don't want to have to go out and and feed the hungry and, and visit prisoners in their cells and welcome people into my home. So I just emphasize the area that I like. And this whole church discipline thing, it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about. It's also a rare thing to come up, even in the New Testament world. It wasn't something that happened all the time. But we often, almost daily, have opportunities, perhaps every day, perhaps every hour, to forgive, to show grace, to choose to welcome someone back into relationship with us, rather than to cause them grief, to pay back for the grief they caused us. Now, here the individual repented. And, of course, that's the goal, and it was needed for there to be full restoration. What about in our lives when someone doesn't repent? I've heard people on this passage and other passages say, well, then we don't need to forgive. There has to be repentance for forgiveness. If someone's not going to admit they were wrong, I can hang on to my grudge. Really? Do you even Jesus? I mean, look, look at what, what, what did the Lord Jesus say as he's being nailed to the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, forgive them. Were they repenting? No, they were doubling down. They did this hand. Then they did this hand. Then they nailed his feet. Then they picked up that cross and anchored it in the ground so that he would, his weight caused him to not be able to breathe and he would begin to slowly die. Father, forgive them. How do we forgive? Well, Paul says in Colossians 3, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should forgive. Which means we need to forgive those who have not repented. Those who are continuing even to sin against us. We see this modeled wonderfully in the death of Stephen. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, who's dragged out of this sham trial where he was preaching the gospel because he knew they were his last moments and his last breaths. And they brought him outside the city and they began to stone him to death. And and you'd think his last words would be, Lord, receive my spirit. And he does say that. But then before he dies, he says something else. It's like he has a realization, I can't go to my death in peace unless I say these words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That shows that he, like Jesus, is concerned for the souls of sinners, even the sinners who are victimizing and murdering him. Look back then to the Old Testament. There's a similar messenger for faithfulness being stoned to death in almost the same area. Stone's throw away, not outside the city, but in the temple between the altar and the sanctuary. His name is Zechariah, and he's a priest. And he is being killed. And with his last breath, he says, May the Lord see and avenge. Those are some kind of hardcore last words. And there's not anything truly wrong with them in their context. He's saying, I put it in God's hands, God will do justice. I don't seek retribution. I didn't tell anyone here to to avenge me. I'm saying, may God avenge me. What happened between him being put to death and Stephen? We saw that God would avenge sin on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. So that we can look at a sinner and say, I have hope for your soul because your sin has been paid for. God has already avenged me. He did it by allowing his son to be nailed to a cross and to suffer for the sins of all who believe, and turn to him. His hope is that there will be salvation even for some of his own murderers. And you know there was a guy there while Stephen was being stoned, taking part in all this. His name was Paul. And that prayer, Lord, do not count this, this sin against them, that hopes for their salvation came to fruition in Paul. And he's the one writing these words to us here in Second Corinthians. He was knocked down on the road to Damascus and became a believer. And now he too encourages Forgiveness. Now, we must forgive everyone, but there can be, when someone repents, true restoration. True reconciliation. We can have all of what we had before and was lost by sin. That's what redemption is all about. We read in Luke 17, Jesus says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Jesus is telling us to be prodigal in our grace. Remember the word prodigal from the prodigal son? Why is he called that? It's not because he goes astray. That's not what prodigal means. Prodigal means lavish. It's because he went out with all this money that he hadn't earned, and he said to all of his friends who were fair-weather friends, Hey, this round's on me. That stuff's on me. Right over there is on me. He was prodigal with all that he had until it was all gone. And then when he came home, he found that his father was prodigal with grace and mercy and forgiveness. And our father is prodigal. He gives us more and more grace. And we receive it, and we are expected then to pass it on to those who would sin against us. And we have to remember this as well if we have sinned against someone else. True repentance is necessary for me to be reconciled to you when I sin against you. And true repentance doesn't just mean a spoken apology. I, I might come to you and tell you I'm sorry, but if I don't have the heart of repentance that says I will do what is necessary to make this right, it may be it may be It may be just so many words, just so much hot air. We were in 1 Peter not long ago, and we talked about that famous verse, always be ready to give an answer or to give a defense for the hope that lies within you. And I told you in the Greek, that word is apologia, that word for a defense or an answer. It's a legal term. You get up on the witness stand and you defend yourself why what you did was okay. And too often, that's what a spoken apology is. It's me giving a defense of what I did. Cloaked in me being somehow penitent. Look, I'm sorry that you were offended by what I said, and I'm sorry that you took it the wrong way, but there is a world of difference between that and I was unkind and unthoughtful when I said what I said, and I repent, I, I, I am sorry, and I will, with God's help, not do it again, and can you forgive me? We'll be willing, if we truly want restoration and reconciliation, to make restitution. Look at Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, he was a wee little man. We little man was he, but what he, he's best known for and what what he best uh, shows us in the scriptures is that when we are convicted of sin and we recognize we've wronged someone, we should, because we're full of the Holy Spirit and God's love and grace, want to make it right. As soon as he comes to faith in Jesus and he recognizes his sin and he confesses his sin, he goes out and whoever he had stolen from, whoever he had cheated, he makes restitution Fourfold restitution. Here's what I took off the top, and here's three times that. There's one more aspect it takes place when we're talking about forgiveness or when we're exercising forgiveness, and that is, in our world today, people often lump together these two concepts of forgiving and forgetting. Right? And, and, and when you're wrong, then you forgive someone. You say, Lord, I forgive them, and give me the grace to forgive them. I've had people come back to me and say, Pastor, I don't know if I really forgave them because it came back into my head and and I know that if I forgive, I'll be able to forget and I won't even know that they wronged me. That's nowhere in scripture. You might say, well, wait a minute. We're supposed to forgive like God forgives and point to Hebrews 10 that says, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Or point to Isaiah 43 and say, I, even I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. And say, well, therefore, when God forgives, he forgets. When I forgive, I I need to forget. Hold on. It doesn't say here that God forgets. It says that God will not remember our sins. Oh, preacher, you're splitting hairs now. No, I'm not. There's a very important concept here. The idea of remembering. It's the word Zechariah. It's where my name comes from. Zakariah. Yahweh, has remembered. Throughout the scriptures, God remembers My my people are in chains in Egypt. I have heard their cries, and I have remembered my covenant. It doesn't mean that he had forgotten his covenant, and then he heard from them. He was like, I I do have a deal with those guys. I better do something. No, it means he called it to mind. To remember is to bring up from the depths of his eternal memory. To bring it up and to act based on it. And so when he says, I will remember their sins no more, he can't forget them. He is omniscient. And you can't when you've been sinned against. It leaves a mark. It leaves a scar. But he says, I will not bring it up again. And I will not act based on those things. I will not punish them. They've already been punished on the back of Jesus Christ. And if God won't punish them, how can we? And there are so many ways we can punish. We can punish someone by not giving them the benefit of the doubt ever again. We can bring up their, their sins against us. We can we can. Treat them as if they are suspect, and we expect them to sin again at any moment. And, you know, I think that we see a beautiful example of how we should approach this right here in this text. We're not 100% certain that Paul is talking about the man who was in the relationship with his father's wife. He doesn't say that specifically. Maybe in this lost letter he brings up something else altogether. Maybe it's one of the leaders who was opposing him who then later repented. Who knows? Who knows? Why don't we know? Because he only talks to this guy by calling him such a one, or this one, or him. Why doesn't he write down exactly what happened for posterity? Because he can't dredge it back up. He will remember it no more. It's under the blood of Jesus. This man has repented and been forgiven, and he is not going to open old wounds. Don't forgive and forget. You cannot forgive and release. That is what God does. That is what we're called to do. The more common Greek word for forgive is a phiemi, and it means to release or to let go or to send away or abandon. There's almost a dual meaning in here of letting that person go from the cage that you've been keeping them in in your heart, as well as abandoning the grudge or the right that you have to go back and hold it against them. Remember, love keeps no record of wrongs. Aaron and I sold a car a few years ago. And the guy that we sold it to never registered the title. And then he used it for a while. He abandoned it in Detroit. We got a letter. It says, abandoned vehicle. You're on the hook for all this money. And we said, uh, no, we're not. That's not our car anymore. What a beautiful picture. I mean, a pain in the butt for us. But a beautiful picture of what forgiveness looks like. That's not mine anymore. I've abandoned that. I don't have any right. Any. I gave off the title to that grudge, to that bitterness, to that anger. And I am not going to go back and take possession of it ever again. We forgive and release. And we do it in the most gracious possible way. In the way that we would want to be forgiven. Remember that, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. How would you want to be forgiven? In a way that at the same time kind of turns the screws to you and reminds you what you did over and over again. Yes, in Luke 13, Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. But... There's not always a need for rebuking. When someone already knows they have sinned, they already feel terrible about it, but maybe I want to hear them grovel a little bit. I have to resist that sinful temptation and look to the model of Jesus. If anyone was wronged by his friends, it was Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. Oh Lord, I will always stand by your side, even if I have to go to death. I'm out of here. All of them fled. Peter denied that he ever, never knew him even swearing an oath in the presence of God i've never met the man and jesus made eye contact with him jesus saw it all go down while he was in his darkest hour living his worst life now if you will he was abandoned in the worst way by those who he needed the most and yet what does he say when he comes to them after his resurrection when he comes to them behind closed doors does he say, first of all, how could you have done that to me? Let's hear some apologies. No, he knows they're heartbroken. He knows that Peter has been weeping. He knows that they wished that they had done it a different way. What does he actually say? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. John 20, 21. Let's not talk about it. It's under the blood. It's water under the bridge. He reaffirmed them as if nothing had happened. He let them save face. He, he, went and he, didn't even, he didn't even talk to Peter about what had happened in front of the others. He takes him aside privately. He doesn't bring up the sin, but he kind of does. Peter had rejected him three times, and Jesus three times reaffirms him. Peter, do you love me? Then feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Then feed my sheep, take care of my flock. He reaffirms him privately, and that is a model for us as well. Yes, all this stuff going on in 2 Corinthians, it was public. It was public knowledge. It was a public mark on the weakness of the church. And so it was dealt with publicly. But not all sin has to be dealt with that way. It doesn't always have to be some big, huge deal. Most forgiveness and repentance and confession happens on the down low, quietly, in our hearts, in a room with two people. When I was in college, at Cornerstone College, we had a number of great chapel speakers. And I remember there was a guy who came in, and and he, I think it was Dan Seaborn, a guy from Zealand. He does a family ministry, and he talked about uh, the the Sermon on the Mount and how Jesus had taught that whoever uh, lusts after a woman in his heart has committed adultery in God's eyes. And there was an individual... In my dorm, who was so convicted by that, the Holy Spirit used it to just convict him of this sin, this secret sin that he had, had that he had been very lustful, that he had been he'd been ogling everybody and, and so he he wrote down a list of all the girls he could think of that he had done that <laughs> to, and he started calling them up I, this is so and so, and i 'm just calling to tell you that i have, <laughs> I have lusted after you, and I confess and i 'm sorry and it made for some creepy weirdness where there didn't have to be any because this was not a sin with a victim the only victim was this guy's heart this was a secret sin and secret sin only requires secret confession you and god you you've coveted your neighbor's speedboat you don't have to go and confess to your neighbor just tell god you've harbored ang- anger in your heart against your coworker unless you think you've treated him poorly or cheated him or defrauded him you only need to confess that to God and give it up to Him. Now, maybe you have an accountability partner who helps you, that it's it's good to confess our sins one to another. But secret sin only requires us to be forgiven by God. Then private sin. If I if I wrong you and you only, and it didn't become a big thing, and it, and it didn't become public knowledge, I can go to you privately and tell you I'm sorry for what I've done. I don't need to make it public. Private sin, private confession. Public sin, public Confession. This is the model in the scriptures, and it makes so that there's, there's not unnecessary critical attention on the church every time someone needs to be forgiven by his or her brother or sister. Anyone whom you forgive, Paul writes, I also forgive. Indeed, that I have forgiven, if, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant Of his designs. In the presence of Christ or in the person of Christ, acting by Christ's authority, I forgive him. As an apostle, whatever we loose on earth is loosed on heaven. Whatever we forgive on earth is been forgiven on heaven. As I believe Christ acts toward this penitent soul, Paul says, so I in Christ forgive his sin. Let us forgive his offense, he says to the church, against the church, and restore him to full communion. Why? Because there's one more reason here. For them to forgive. Yes, first of all, out of concern for this man, that he will not be overwhelmed with with grief, with sorrow, that he won't feel like God and his church have abandoned him when he needs them most. Secondly, to prove their faith so that they can show themselves to be obedient in all things. But thirdly, to keep from being outwitted by Satan. Because Satan will always try and take the gospel and turn it into one of his weapons. That's his favorite trick. And whatever way you're leaning, he will use your inertia. There was a, a picture of one of our young guys on Facebook the other day uh, getting a, a new belt in judo. And, and he's he's oh, almost my height now. He's getting bigger. And, and he was taking these big guys and throwing them all over the place. In judo, somebody comes lunging at you and you use their forward inertia. Oh, That's Satan's favorite move. If you're moving toward... He's just saying, well, you know, grace and non-judgment, and we're just gonna let this sin go on in our midst and not say anything because it would be weird. He will grab you and he will pull you in that direction, as he did, and and Paul had to address in 1 Corinthians 5. If you're then saying, Well, we, we cast him out and we're and we're showing him that there is a need for repentance and now we're gonna make him hurt, well, he will grab you and pull you in that direction as well. There are schemes. You think there are schemes to tear this church apart? I hope so. If there's not, why not? I hope the devil's working overtime. Because if he's not, that means that we aren't making any impact that he even needs to address. Paul had said, uh, deliver this offender to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And that word would mean sin nature in that concept. In in, in the idea of of the old self that needs to be taken away and burned off that the spirit might be saved. But Satan sought to go another step further to destroy this guy's soul as well. And if they let him do that, it would be an awful shame for the church. Church discipline would be seen not as leading to restoration, but as leading to destruction. The enemies of the church would love this sort of thing. This, this group eats their own, throws them off the back of the bus, and runs them over. This is not a group you want to be involved in. And they would be in danger, they were in danger, of handing Satan the very weapon he could use, which would be this man's despair. God does not want a sinner to go to despair and fall away and and become lost. That's what what we heard from the teaching in in, uh, the gospel that Terry read. I do not desire that even one of these little ones should be lost, but that they should be restored. Ezekiel 33, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Luke 15.10, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There are parties in heaven over a sinner repenting, not over a sinner falling away and falling into despair. But Satan would love to turn all of this, not only human passions and lusts and pride, but even repentance into a weapon against us under the guise of religion and order and justice. In Ephesians 6, that's why Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God so we will be ready to stand against the schemes of the devil. And the devil will scheme in your life as well. If there is somewhere in your life that you have not forgiven, that you are holding somebody out there so that they'll, they'll experience the same kind of sorrow and grief they might have caused you, oh, that is giving the devil a toehold, a hoofhold, toe hoof if you will, in your life, in your heart. If you're holding someone out there and say, no, you, you can't have access to me anymore. You wronged me. I forgive you, but they're empty words. There's no penitence. There's, there's no desire to have reconciliation. Today is the day to repent of that. Today is the day to, to make that phone call or to go and, and just show up on someone's door and say, listen, I need to forgive you. Or listen, I have sinned against you. Will you forgive me? In the church, there must be restoration wherever there is something broken. That is always the goal. Even in something where you read Paul, in the harshest way possible, tell a church you've got to expel the immoral brother. The goal there, as with all of discipleship, is that they would come back together, stronger for it, more Christ-like, and ready to serve him together. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we carry out our lives as fallen people, Lord, we know that we have uh, tendencies, shameful desires to, to punish each other. To, to give each other a taste of their own medicine. Lord, we just pray that that would all be swallowed up in the love and grace of Jesus. That we would not use grace as an excuse to throw out the category of holiness. That we would not use grace as an, as an excuse to turn a blind eye and let our brother fall into sin. But Lord, that we would bring rebuke and bring their attention to what what they're doing when need be. But Lord, may our eye always, always be to restoration. And I pray if there is anyone, especially within our church congregation, that is harboring ill will or anger or or some old resentment or grudge against one another, that today would be the day that it would come to an end. We know, Lord, that when we do not forgive one another, we actually impede your forgiving us. Scripture says that at least six times. And Lord, we know that you our one who loves forgiveness and restoration, that you leave the 99 and go find the one who is strayed and put that lamb on your shoulders and go back to the fold rejoicing and singing songs of praise. Lord, may we too have that heart. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.